Hey, my name is Colton. I'm one of the serving leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope that you can lean in and enjoy this message. We really are just so thrilled and honored that you would be with us on this Easter Sunday. You know, Easter really is just a celebration of good news. That's, that's all why we gather. It's not just simply good advice. It really is a declaration of something unbelievable. It's often been said that the gospel, if it's not declared as something that sounds too good to be true, it probably really isn't the reality of the gospel. Because what Jesus has done really is just that. It almost just seems too good to be true. And on this day, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate together the event that changed human history. Regardless of what you believe about faith or kind of where you are with the whole Jesus thing, you, you cannot deny that Jesus changed the world in a pretty radical way. And so we celebrate this event together, the resurrection, which is the cornerstone of our faith. There may be so many questions you still have about God or the scriptures, but all of our faith just simply hinges upon this one singular event. I heard one scholar say that the resurrection means that the worst thing that happens will not be the last thing that happens. In other words, the best is always still yet to come with Christ. And that's good news for many of us who maybe you're in here this morning, you're going through a pretty difficult season. Maybe it's a season of significant pain or frustration, a lot of disappointment, or even significant grief. But the good news of the resurrection and what what Easter reminds us of once again, that the worst thing that happens, not the last thing that happens. In fact, the 20th century poet, Oscar Wilde, who for most of his life, he, he ran from God and kind of ran from a faith that he had once been handed when he was a child. But near the very end of his life, just a few years before he passed away, he came back into faith in Christ. And he once wrote that everything is going to be fine in the end. And if it's not fine, it's not the end yet. That's the good news of the gospel. In fact, in so many ways, that's the invitation of Jesus all the way throughout the scripture. Just come and see if this isn't a reality. Come and see if I won't take something that seems final and turn it into something that is actually far greater with transcendent joy that will actually be eternal. So just simply come and see. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I was at an airport and right here in town and and I'm waiting for waiting for the individual to come over the, the intercom and let me know that it's time to board the plane. And after a, few, after a few moments, finally the individual comes over the loudspeaker and, and says, ladies and gentlemen, um, your plane is now ready to board. Uh, those who are seated in zones one through um, three, like he just made it up on the spot, uh, you may now make your way to the ticket counter. Like, okay, and just at that moment, I looked out the window and I saw my plane. And I thought to myself, well, how much this plane weighs? And so I pulled it up on my phone, as you do. And I, and I realized, man, this thing's over 100,000 pounds. And it just dawned on me in this moment, like, that's a pretty bizarre invitation that that guy just extended to all of us right now. Think about what he just asked me. Hey, go ahead and come on this, this plane. It's the size of a modern-day ranch house. We're going to go up about seven miles into the sky and hurl at speeds three times faster than the fastest NASCAR racer. Oh, and by the way, when you get on the plane, there's going to be a flight attendant. It's going to come down your aisle, and they're going to tell you, for the safety of your flight, please keep the window shades open, turn all electronic devices in airplane mode, and your seat back needs to be in an upright position. For the what? For the safety of our flight. 
You're telling me that if the dude in the back who's passed out right now because he had one too many martinis on vacation is, forgets any of this stuff that like, the safety of my flight is in jeopardy? In fact, on this exact same flight, evidently my seat wasn't in a perfectly upright position. The flight attendant came along and said, sir, sir, can you go ahead and put your seat back in an upright position? Because this is unsafe, but this is safe. Unsafe, safe. I said, you betcha. For the safety of my fellow passengers, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. But it kind of seems like a bizarre invitation. Come board this plane. And of course, it would be bizarre if, if you had never seen a plane flyer. Fly you had never experienced flight yourself. You, you'd be stunned at that invitation as well. In fact, I think, I think it would feel a little bit like the women felt when they first showed up at the tomb of Jesus. Three, possibly four women come just to pay respects to Jesus on that first Easter Sunday. And when they arrived, they experienced something they weren't expecting to experience. You got to catch this, because if you were there, you would have had the exact same emotions as these women. They show up, in fact, in Matthew chapter 28, we see that when they showed up, there was an angel at the tomb. And the angel said to the women, hey, don't be afraid. Reason being is because they were afraid. They were afraid of their lives. They were also in fear of the fact that, are we seeing what we think that we're seeing? Or did we just have one too many triple shot vanilla oat milk lattes this morning, right? Like, what, what's going on here? And it says, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified, but he's not here. He was risen, just like he said that he was going to do. So come and see the place where, where Jesus lay. Now, these words would have messed with you had you been there on that first Easter Sunday, and they mess with these women too. Like, can we trust the proclamation of this angel? But here's what's interesting. I think the angel knew something. He wasn't expecting them to simply take him at his word. He said, no, 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 just come and see for yourself. Peek in. Look, look into the tomb for you. And so they, so they did. They, they began to peer, and, and sure enough, what they found was an empty tomb, but an empty tomb, listen, listen, it never resists honest investigation. If you're kind of newer to faith or skeptical about faith or, or maybe you've been following Jesus for quite some time, but you maybe found yourself in a season of deconstructing faith. See, following Jesus always requires faith, but it never demands blind faith. The invitation of Jesus is always come and see for yourself. Don't just take the angel at his word. Just don't take, just don't take grandma at, his, at her word. Like, come and see for, your, for yourself. I was having coffee with a friend of mine about a year or so ago. It was a new relationship. We're just beginning this, this friendship. And this individual and I, we had met a few times. And they would come with different questions about faith and spirituality and, and Jesus. And I was really enjoying our conversations. In fact, it was just kind of fun to hear their story. And, and with honest humility, they were searching for answers. And they weren't expecting me to have all of them. And it was really, it was really just kind of a life-giving conversation to watch as they were leaning into just this curiosity about faith in Christ. They didn't grow up in any sort of religious environment. They would have described themselves as a curious agnostic. And near the end of one of our conversations, we're getting ready to both go our ways to separate appointments. And they said something to me that I'll never forget. They said, Jordan, this, this God stuff, it's all really interesting to me. 
but I don't really have time to continue to explore it. And I thought, man, my friend at that coffee house represents many of us who are interested in deep, ultimate questions about God and life and eternity and, and the abundant life that Jesus has come to, to offer us, but we don't have time to ponder these questions. And we don't take time to come and to see. A.J. Soboda, in his book, After Doubt, he brilliantly and a bit comically wrote that the toxic trinity of this moment is a hunger for truth, a belief that we determine it for ourselves in the never-ending task of family, hobbies, kids, friends, sports, and Uber. Then he so brilliantly said, we all suffer from reflective poverty. Reflective poverty. One of the unique privileges that I get to experience quite often as a, as a pastor is this opportunity to, to sit and meet with so many different people and to hear their stories. I, I love to read and to listen to, to people's stories. And one of the discoveries that I've made over the years is that, that people who have experienced the reality of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, people who have not just heard about but actually experienced the full sufficiency that Christ and Christ alone can, can bring— there's something they all have in common. They're all willing to risk patience, to look a little deeper, to explore a little longer, to, to kind of come and, and see. In one sense, to contemplate the consequences of the empty tomb or to, to actually dig in and, and think about the reality and the implications and that if the resurrection really did happen, what does that mean for my life? See, in social science, particularly in the area of religion, there's, there's an understanding that everything that we believe is filtered through something that each of us have. It's called a plausibility structure. Some of you may have heard this before, but just kind of a working definition is, is a belief-forming apparatus within each and every one of us that acts as a gatekeeper of sorts. It lets in evidence that's matched against what we already consider to be possible. And it excludes any evidence, even if it's true, that we don't think would be plausible, a plausibility structure. In other words, for just kind of a, a working example, if I walked into my home later this afternoon and I found a box of cookies on the shelf in my pantry, I would think to myself, oh, Courtney went to the store, she bought some cookies, and she set them on the shelf. But if you were in my home and you said, Jordan, did you see those cookies on the shelf? I said, I sure did. Do you know where those came from? Yes, I do. My wife bought them. No, 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 no. They were some tree-dwelling elves. They, they baked these cookies. They packaged them real neatly and then, and then put them on, their, on your shelf. They, they did it themselves. Now, I would think you're a lunatic. And you would probably think you are a lunatic too. Because there's nothing within me... I, I don't, I don't have kind of this plausibility structure for an existence of unionized elves. So it doesn't allow that to become a reality in my life. But some of us so quickly dismiss the claims of Jesus. Some of us so quickly dismiss the authority of the scriptures and the authors of the New Testament because our plausibility structures that have been built over time prevent us from risking patience, from looking a little deeper, from pausing a little longer, and considering something that we previously considered to be not true, that maybe this, maybe this is real. And unfortunately for many of us, we've become Jude's greatest fear. What he wrote in Jude 1 verse 10, that these people slander whatever they don't understand. 
Tell me if there's a verse better than that to describe the generation and the day in which we live. That anything we don't understand, we just scoff at it. We just dismiss it. We just say, man, they're stupid for believing what they believe. And we just, we kind of just say, I don't really have a plausibility structure for that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul, who's responsible for authoring about 60% of the newer portion of our Bible called the New Testament, he echoes some of the same words that the angel said. He kind of echoes this sentiment. Hey, just come and see for yourself. Just look a little longer. Pause and kind of look a little bit, little bit deeper. And he, and he offers to us some evidence as to why at least, at the very least, why Paul believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And he begins in verse 3 of chapter 15 by saying, I passed on to you what was most important, what had always also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and then raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was then seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, seen by more than 500 of his followers all at the exact same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all of the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, I saw him too. Paul lays out for us just kind of quick five quick evidences as to why Paul believes in the resurrection. In fact, the very first thing he says is we can believe in the resurrection of Jesus simply because of the scriptures. Now, when I was in my mid-20s, I was youth pastoring at the time and getting paid to actually like help kids. It was the craziest job ever and also probably the most fun job of my life. But, but, but during that season, I started to deconstruct my faith. My I started to question a lot of the things I had been handed and sort of been constructed and given over the course of my, my childhood. And it was a really bizarre season for me because in one sense, I was like a professional Christian. But in another sense, I was having far more questions and had a lot more doubts than I had answers for. And it, it caused me to lean in and, and say, man, like, what do I really believe? And during that season, one of the things that strengthened my faith more than anything else was all of the fulfilled prophecy that we saw all from the Old Testament and in particular that came to pass and came to fruition just on the day that Christ was killed and on that day alone. Did you know that there were 29 prophecies declared in the Old Testament, the youngest of which was 500 years old that were all fulfilled on the day that Jesus died? 29. And when you read them and then you read the accounts, the historical accounts of what took place in that day, it is hard to dismiss the reality of what happened and the reality that, man, what's the likelihood that all 29 will be fulfilled on one day? In fact, there's a 20th century mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner. He's also a professor at several universities, which has always been a bit comical to me that he would have been, he would have been referred to as Professor Stoner. That's, if that's not funny to you... I mean, you're talking about college kids calling professors. Anyway, probably inappropriate on Easter, but nevertheless. And, and Peter Stoner had estimated that the probability of just eight prophecies, not even considering 29, just eight prophecies being fulfilled in one lifetime alone, he said it like this. Cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. On one dollar, place one mark. What's the probability that a person could, on the first attempt, select the marked dollar? Those are the same odds that eight prophecies would be satisfied in the life of one man. Not to consider 21 more prophecies all happening in one day. In addition, Paul said, look, if the scriptures aren't enough for you, you got to remember that he appeared to Peter. 
Again, the apostle Paul is friends with Peter and he knew the story of Peter was that on the day that Jesus was being crucified, Peter denied having ever known Jesus, considering the fact that he followed him closely for three and a half years, but his faith became so weak and he became so timid, he didn't want to be associated with Jesus and possibly experience death himself. But after Peter experienced and saw the resurrected king, resurrected Jesus himself, something happened in Peter. And later on in Peter's life, he was actually martyred for his faith. He was willing to give the entirety of his life for Jesus. This same life that he was once so timid and shy about completely changed him simply because of the resurrection. In addition, Paul says he also appeared to 500 people at one time. Now consider for just a moment, what's the likelihood of 500 people corroborating their stories all identically? Paul says, well, you can go ask them for yourself. If you don't believe me, go ask them. That's why Paul writes, most of them are still alive. So you can go ask them for their stories as well. In addition, he appeared to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. How many of y'all have a brother? Can I see your hands? I've got a brother. I've got, I've got a few brothers. I've got three of them, to be a fact. If one of your brothers came to you today and at Easter lunch said, hey, um, guys, I got something to tell you. Whew, I don't know how to break the news to you, so I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I'm the Messiah. Excuse me? Savior. Savior of what? The world. Yeah, in fact, in just a few hours, I'm about to go sit at the right hand of Father God and take up my place on his throne. You'd be like, you say you're the son of God? You're the son of the devil. Get out of here, right? But... In fact, the scriptures record that James, the half-brother of Jesus, did not believe the words of Jesus. He was too close in relationship with him in one sense until after he saw Jesus resurrected. And then James completely changed course because if someone in your life predicts his own death, burial, and resurrection and then pulls it off, well, I believe everything that you say now. Right? Like, and that was James. Now, lastly, Paul says, oh, and by the way, like, I, I saw him too. Like I experienced the resurrection for myself. Think about this for just a moment. In fact, if you're already a follower of Jesus, my, my prayer going into this week is that some of this would just kind of in one sense help equip us as a community, as a church, as a family to strengthen our faith as well so that people couldn't talk us out so easily of the things in which we believe. Because again, the empty tomb always offers and invites honest investigation. But think about this for just a moment, that, that there were no opponents of Christ that ever challenged the vacancy of the tomb. No Pharisee, no religious leader, no Roman cohort ever led a contingent back to the burial site and said, oh, hey, hey guys, hey, the angel is lying. I found the corpse. It's right here. And yet they would have if they could have because within weeks, disciples occupied every street corner in Jerusalem wanting to share the good news of the risen Christ. Max Lucado in his book, Next Door Savior, he says it like this, what quicker way for the enemies of the church to shut them up than to just simply produce a cold, lifeless body? But they couldn't because there was no cold, lifeless body. They couldn't find it because he lives and hear me, church, because he lives, that's why we celebrate today. That's why for over 2,000 years, people have continued to gather on Christmas and Easter, which, by the way, Easter is even more significant than Christmas because it's, than Christmas. I think I said Christmas. <laughs> than Christmas because, because if Christmas happened but Easter didn't, he's just a good man. That's it. 
He's just a great prophet, maybe did some miracles, somebody, that, somebody who kind of shared with us some good virtues and some, some, some kind of offering us some advice for morality. But because of Easter, he's somebody that's willing, that we ought to be willing to say, man, this, this ought to at the very least cause us to pause long enough to consider the implications of what this means in my life. But because he lives, we can be forgiven. In fact, that's one of the greatest news of this, of this day. In fact, Paul says it like this in verse 9 of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Again, he says, for I'm the least of all the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Why, why would you say that, Paul? Well, because I persecuted the church of God. I used to be paid to murder Christians and to put them on display publicly for their own misery in hopes that other people then would never want to become just like them. But Paul goes on, he says, but, but then I experienced Christ. And by the grace of God, grace being God's ability to do for you and for me what we cannot do on our own, he says, by the grace of God, I am now what I am. It's not because of something that I've done. It's not because of some good advice that I've followed. It's simply because of what Christ has done for me. And the resurrection for us today means that you can be forgiven too. That each of us can experience that same salvation that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians. Think for just a moment about your worst sin. Your biggest mistake. Don't think about the person next to you because it's easy to point out their sin, but it's oftentimes hard to point out the sin of the person that you see every time you look in the mirror. Think about, think about the sin that you don't want anybody to know about or the one that you wish nobody had, had first discovered. That sin was placed on Jesus. And then he was punished for that sin for you. And the penalty of sin is always death. See, the, the penalty for for any mistake in your life, there's always a penalty, always. We intuitively, inherently understand that. People all around the world understand that. There's, there's some, form, some, some form of punishment for every crime. And the punishment, God sets the standard for sin is death. It's not just physical death, it's eternal, spiritual death. And Jesus, the perfect, innocent son of God, was killed for your sin. And then his dead body was placed in a grave. But three days later, Jesus walked out of that grave, but your sin stayed there. In fact, Corrie ten Boom says, said it like this in one of her writings, that God put our sin in the deepest parts of the deepest sea and then put a sign up that said, no fishing allowed. Can't come in here. No trespassing allowed. That's what he did for our sin. That's what he offers to you, but you have to choose it. You got to receive it. Like any gift, you have to choose to, to take part of it. But it's not just forgiveness that he offers. It's not just a new perspective. It's not just a new way of living and a new set of morality or a new offering us a new perspective on, on how to view ethics in our, in our world. Paul says, I was changed. In fact, when Christ enters your life, you begin to experience the resurrection power of Jesus in your life too. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 8 says it like this, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives and dwells and breathes in you. 
And so again, it's not just, oh, you get forgiveness and now you can kind of go on living the exact same way that you did. No, he says, no, I want to offer you a brand new start, a genesis, if you will, a new beginning. The old has passed, the new has come, a new creation is what he does in you and through you. And so when you trust in Christ, the power of the resurrection begins to take root in your life. And the hater becomes the lover. The racist becomes the humble servant. The cheating husband becomes the faithful father. The addict becomes the trusted friend. He creates something new within each and every one of us when we put our trust in his resurrection. Not in our strength, not in our willpower, but in God's grace, his ability to do for you what we cannot do for ourselves. And secondly, because he lives, death has no more sting. Paul quoting two different Old Testament passages goes on in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. So where, O oh, death, now is your victory? Where, O oh, death, now is your sting? In one sense, Paul is like trash talking death here. He's like, you, you thought you were going to win? Man, it's like, it's like the Buckeyes trash talking Michigan next year. It's like, man, y'all got two victories under your belt. You think you're something special. And yet in reality, we're all like, man, we hope we win, you know. But Paul is trash talking death here. And, and he says, where's your sting, death? Where is it? See, the sting of death is its permanence. But Christ has taken that sting away. And on the cross of Jesus, Jesus took the curse of death onto himself so that now when we or a loved one enters death, it's not permanent anymore. In fact, I heard a story just a few weeks back about a dad whose daughter was deathly allergic to bee stings. And the dad was driving down the road and his daughter's in the back seat and he hears his daughter yelling, shrieking, dad, dad, there's a bee in the car. The dad hurriedly pulls the vehicle to the sword of the road. He jumps out of the car. He goes to the back seat. He identifies the location of the bee sitting right next to his daughter. And without hesitation, he traps the bee under his hands. And he waits a few seconds. Then he pushes the bee out of the door. And he looks at his daughter who with fear in her eyes says, dad, 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 now what? Now what? He says, the bee can't hurt you anymore. But what if the bee comes back in the car? It's okay, daughter, because his sting is in my hand. That's what Jesus has done to death for you. And for me, he says, no, you, death has no more stingers. Not that we don't experience the pain of death. It's not that we don't still grieve when loved ones pass away. It's that we are reminded once again that death is not permanent. And that once, someday, soon and very soon, we will all experience the communion of the saints again in a place that we can't even fathom how good it is. In fact, it's not some ethereal place out there. It's a renewed earth that is the perfection of what God always intended for it to be. And you and your loved ones all have the opportunity to experience the eternal reality of what it looks like to experience the joy of salvation, knowing that death no longer has the sting that it once had. And third and lastly, because he lives, living for him, if you think about it, it's really the only wise choice. Like there really is no other alternative. If you come and see and you look long enough, you realize 
you're pretty incredible, Jesus. And I don't know why I would try to do this without you. In fact, Paul says it like this in verse 58 of that same chapter. With all of this going on, everything that we read a moment ago, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. There's a lot of options that we have in life, a lot of things that we can give our time and effort to, but there's only one man who defeated death, hell, and the grave. And to the best that I can see, the best that I can tell, it is worth giving the entirety of our life to him. In fact, Jesus himself even said it like this in Matthew 16, anybody who intends to come with me, you gotta let me lead. You gotta do it my way. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. In fact, Jesus never promised us a pain-free life. He promised us a life where he will redeem all pain in our lives. He goes on, he says, if you're not sure how to do that, just follow me and I'll show you. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade? What, could, what would ever be worth trading for your soul? Again, what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm telling you, like if you see me for who I really am, in fact, we have this deep conviction here at Ethos that when you see Jesus for who he really is, he's irresistible. He's unbelievably beautiful. He's unbelievably kind and good and merciful and gracious and desiring of you to come to him just as you are. That's the invitation. Just come and see if not even better than what you've heard me to be. And God didn't meet us halfway. That's, that might be the most beautiful thing about Jesus is he refused to wait for us. He didn't hold back cautious, sort of assessing our worth. That's not his heart. In fact, Paul said it like this in Romans 5, that when we were utterly helpless, when we couldn't do it, when you can't do it. In fact, I think... When you live in a fairly, when you find yourself at a certain place in life, you begin to almost feel like, I can do all this on my own, can I? But there will be a moment in all of our lives where we too will feel utterly helpless. Where no matter what our bank account says, where no matter how many friends we've had, how much influence we've garnered, there'll be a point in our life where time catches up to each of us and it may be an unexpected moment or it may be a moment that the doctors have said, you've got a few more months left. But no matter how it happens, it'll happen the same for all of us. And so each of us have to consider for just a moment that really, we are pretty helpless. But the good news, like Paul said, is that Christ came at just the right time. And he died for us, not waiting for us to get it right, but coming to us so that we wouldn't have to continue to screw up continuing to, to get it wrong. And the only prerequisite for receiving Christ is just simply admit, I need Christ. In fact, Paul goes on in that same, same chapter. He says, since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. 
That's what he calls us. Those of us who are in Christ, he says, you are my friend. You're part of my, you're part of my family now. One of the deep insecurities that I carry that I often don't really like to admit because it's sort of an ugly, it's kind of, kind of sits in like this ugly place within me. But it's this, it's this tension in my life as a Christian who loves to learn. It's this conflicting desire that I have to appear humble and smart at the same time. In fact, sometimes this manifests in really ugly, like egotistical ways, I'm just gonna be honest. And to be quite frank with you, going into Easter is a really intimidating time to study for a message. Like I've said this for years, some of my friends love, love like prepping for Easter and communicating Easter message. I'm like, I'm terrified of it. I'm always so nervous about it because I know there's gonna be so many new people who come and they're gonna judge me for not having socks on or they're gonna be intimidated by my sweet looking suit, you know? Don't get used to this by the way, but. But no, in all seriousness, I'm like, man, I, just, I honestly, I, have to feel, I feel weight from it sometimes. I feel pressure from it. It's just me being honest. And yet I've had to do a lot of work on this over the last three or four years in particular. One of the things I've discovered is I have this unhealthy core assumption within me that being a Christian means having all of the answers and always being able to constantly prove that I'm right. But that's not what being a Christian is. In fact, I've discovered this, and maybe you have too, that only the Spirit of God can truly reveal truth to you that's why I tricked you earlier today into praying and asking God to open your eyes and open your heart and open your ears because only the Spirit of God can truly reveal himself to you. We can set the table and we can try. We can try to convince you and I want to. I unapologetically want everybody to know the saving grace of Jesus. But it's only his Spirit that can reveal to you who he really is. In the Rocky Mountains, there's this famous dividing line called the Continental Divide. It runs all the way north of Canada and south of Mexico. And what's interesting about the Continental Divide is that any water that falls east of this divide runs into the Atlantic. And any water that falls west of this divide will eventually find its way into the Pacific Ocean which means that two raindrops just falling inches apart from one another could land on different sides of this same divide but end up oceans apart from one another. And that same thing happens here today. In fact, the same thing happens all over the world today. That side by side, inches apart, two people may land on different sides of Jesus. And one of them end up in the unspeakable joy of knowing Christ and the other in an eternal place of death and darkness and separation from Christ. But now listen to me. For those in Christ, this world is as close to hell as you will ever get. The worst thing that happens to you here will not be the end. But for those outside of Christ, this world is as close to heaven as you will ever come. And today I make no apologies about it that what you do with Jesus makes all the difference as to what you'll experience as it relates to those two worlds.